Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. You know what's funny? I realized that, I mean, I realized this. I don't know if anybody realizes this. We do everything what? live on this show. You know, like we don't have any like pre-recorded announcements or like, no, no. you know, sometimes you listen to a show mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, yeah, they recorded that like one time in like a bus station bathroom and yep. they decided to keep that as their like intro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, that's the thing. This is a, our guarantee. Fresh out the box every time. <laughs> we mix it up. We make it so that you get our like real time audio. Every every time. Every time. <laughs> every time. And that's our misinformation guarantee for you. Kagong. Uh, <laughs> Kagong. Yeah, exactly. So this probably would have been a more applicable topic in like 2020. Mm. Um, but I didn't think of it then. So <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but I was poking around the internet and I was like, Hey, you know, what's interesting? Eccentric people, mm-hmm. people who have weird habits, people who have strange predilections. I think you, et cetera, st- et you strive to be an eccentric person in your, in your dotage. Yes. Agreed. I see. Uh, there's the, what I aspire to be is, uh, haha weird, not ooh, weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, oh, you're so weird. Not, ooh, she's weird. You know? <laughs> if the kids got their baseball knocked into their, knocked into your yard. Exactly. You want them to yes. feel like they can come get it. Yeah. And then, you know, they'll be like, ah, Miss Tag is so weird. You know, like that kind of thing. Instead of like, oh, God, she's going to suck out our brains through our eyeballs. Sorry, I didn't. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Ha ha ha! Weird, not, not weird. Really. Although, although I am tipping that needle <laughs> right now, a little bit. Um, so I decided today that my topic is going to be urban hermits. So you pointed this out when I pitched this to you that you were like, I don't think these people are hermits. True. However, you don't get the same like rural juror urban fervor urban 30 fervor. rock yes. kind of <laughs> kind of quality to it yes you can call it whatever you want yeah oh yeah i mean it's are they gonna it's come 50- after us no <laughs> no one listens to this podcast are you kidding me <laughs> we're not triviality with a network not that i'm bitter about that <laughs> i'm Hi, not boys. we would not be we would not Hi, be boys. able to handle a network no. not even a little bit um no it's more of like recluses i guess yes um, and I originally had three, um, but it, this episode would have been an hour and 45 minutes long. It would have been, it would have definitely rivaled submarines. So um, today I have chosen two urban hermits that we can talk about. Now, here's the thing, Lauren. Yes. Rich, reclusive people is one of my most favorite topics in the whole world. Oh. And I'm so excited to listen oh. to this episode. Good. I'm so excited. I might I might add the third person back in for a later episode, possibly. We'll see. See, this is the level of enthusiasm that you expect from your co-host. <laughs> wow. Wow. Still bitter about that out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the other day I did describe myself as noted Hitler disliker Lauren Tagliefer. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> I thought so. Um, okay, so the first person we're going to be talking about today is Huguette Clark. I know you're very excited about this. So Huguette Marcel Clark, she was born on June 9th, 1906. She was born in Paris. Um, she was the second daughter of William A. Clark uh, from his second wife, Anna. And her father was actually a former U.S. senator from Montana, and he was a businessman involved in mining and railroads. And he had really amassed a huge fortune in copper mining in Butte, Montana, and Jerome, Arizona. Um, He was also a railroad magnet and one of the founders of Las Vegas. So this guy was like rich, rich. Um, She spent her entire early life in France, um, and when she was five years old, she was relocated to New York City. 
Um, the family resided in a six-story, 121-room mansion oh, located at 962 Fifth Avenue, which was the largest house in New York City at the time. I love hearing descriptions about things like this because, like, it's t- just totally unfathomable to me. Right? Like, you know, when you oh, see photos of things rooms. like this and you're like, oh, that's like a whole city block. Yep, exactly. 121 rooms. You would conceivably... There would be rooms in your house that you had never been inside. Right. Easily. Easily. Right. And at that so, point, they're not that's not like bathrooms too. Right. Like I yeah, no, that's rooms. That's like <laughs> living spaces, not like, you know, necessaries, as they were called. I guess. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Um, so her father died in nineteen twenty five, and so um, Huguette and her mother relocated from the mansion to a 12th floor apartment at 907 Fifth Avenue. So they just moved like down the road. Uh, so in December 1927, she announced her engagement to law student William McDonald Gower, who was a Princeton University graduate. Um, he was the son of one of her father's business associates. And they married on August 18th, 1928 at Bellows Gardo, her family's 23 acre estate on the Pacific coast in Santa Barbara, California. Um, Bellos Gardo in Italian is um, like I see beautiful or I see beautifully, uh, roughly, I guess. Uh, just FYI. She really liked, her and her family really liked to name their mm-hmm. estates, mm-hmm. like vague, you know, European romantic names, as you'll see in a moment. So Clark and Gower, they actually separated in 1929. <laughs> so two years later. Uh, actually, one year later. Um and divorced in Reno, Nevada on August 11, 1930. Um, there is not really much on like why they divorced. Sure. Um, but after her divorce, she returned to that 12th floor apartment at 907 Fifth Avenue. Um, and upon moving back in, she modified and expanded the apartment significantly so that it took up the entire eighth floor of the building as well as half of the 12th. How do you get Which what? is <laughs> Yeah, which seems strange that she would have to like, it wasn't like the upper floor, it was like three floors up or four floors up floors up. Wow. Which is crazy to think about. So anyway, the residence grew to a total of 42 rooms, including a 30 foot library, a 40 foot drawing room and a 40 foot living room. Um, also she and her mother continued to maintain Bellos Gardo. And during the great depression had the original home torn down and rebuilt quote, just to give people jobs. <laughs> yep. So Huguette visited Bellos Gardo pretty regularly during this period. She stayed there with family and she stayed there with friends. She was, she befriended a a girl named Barbara Dorn. Um, She was the daughter of one of the property's caretakers. And an acquaintance recalled that Huguette, quote, hung out with rich daredevils who drove fast cars and flew rickety planes. Um, But she actually became closest with Dorn because both were very shy and, quote, hid in the garden. Um, she was also a musician and a painter. And in 1929, she exhibited seven of her own paintings at the Corcoran gallery of art in Washington, DC. Um, she possessed an enthusiasm for the arts and was an avid collector of visual art as well as antique toys and dolls. See, and here's the thing and I'm going to bring up. <laughs> I Please. have tried so hard to connect Margaret Strong and Huguette Clark. See, they, I believe that. They both had rich families they right. both collected all of these types of things. They both had residences in Santa Barbara. They were right. mm, maybe with they're within ten years of each other. Like they yeah. had to have met at some point. And There's I've no way tried, that they haven't. I have I have combed through all of Margaret Strong's materials in the archives at the Strong Museum, the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, and I've read three books on Huguette Clark, but I can't get them in the same room together. Oh, then you know more about Huguette Clark than I do in this situation. But that's, I mean, it's been a while. had to have, right? Yeah. Like, they're doll collectors, like avid, crazy ass doll collectors. And I cannot imagine that in the early 20th century that there were that many more doll collectors. That it was like a vast ocean of doll collectors that you could not meet. You know what? You know it's what crazy. I mean? Like, I'm learning more and more about the doll collecting world and like specific societies Mm -hmm. and hobby clubs and stuff like that. And there are ones that um, have limited memberships that they, you have to wait until somebody dies that you can (gasps) get off the waiting list and get into that club. Wow. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong then. Gosh. It's, it's a thing. Wow. Well, I mean, 
<laughs> whatever floats your boat. <laughs> but I'm really some women were just too, you know, too rich. They were they were able to kind of make it. Yeah, bypass the line. I th- I would yeah. say, I would imagine so. They just like flashed a wad of cash and got in. Um. So yes, she collected the dolls and probably knew maybe they were rivals and like <laughs> blotted out all mention of each other and. Like in their wills, they were like, never yes. say anything they about just, you like, get Clark. Any photos of, of the other, yeah. they like <laughs> cut out the face. Scratch out the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Huguette, uh, maybe because of her doll collecting, uh, had a very small group of friends and was, quote, skittish around strangers, spending much of her time in private. She rarely left her residence. We'll get to that soon. She would also occasionally attend Christian Dior fashion shows in New York City. Um, but only to find inspiration from clo- for clothing to dress her dolls. Mm. So she wasn't there because she wanted to buy anything. She was like, ooh, I want to dress my dolls in the latest fashions. Yes. So. She strikes me as like a porcelain, like a jumeau collector. Yes. yes. As opposed fancy, to like a European play doll collector. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, and I know my good friend, uh, Jeff Mayer, he was in the doll world early on in his career as a fashion designer. And there was a lot of, uh, there was this thing called Teatro de la Mode, which was um, the certain fashion designers would show off their designs on dolls, like little marionette Mm -hmm. dolls. And then that's how they would do fashion shows as opposed to like dressing entire women. They would make like tiny, tiny replicas of their fashions. And then you could like pick out whatever, dress you wanted and then they would make a life-size version of it which I guess was cheaper <laughs> I think I showed you a Givenchy one that I saw at um in Coleman's house yes I think you yes you showed me a picture and it was a Teatro de la Mode yeah doll yeah gorge amazing um, so in 1952, she purchased a 52-acre estate in New Canaan, Connecticut, referred to as Le Beau Chateau. Beau Chateau. <laughs> you have to say it with a southern twang. Yes. Weirdly enough, because it's in Connecticut, but Le Beau Chateau. So <laughs> um, sadly, her mother died in 1963, and of course, she became even more reclusive. Um, her mother's death left Huguette the sole owner of Bellos Gardo, which she had not visited since the 1950s and would not visit again. Um, despite her lack of visitation, Bellos Gardo continued to be maintained throughout Clark's life for a total cost of $40,000 a month. Yeah. Caretake. I think, I think what I'd like to do at some point while, you, while you're mm-hmm. off being a, a good eccentric woman, yes. I'm going to go be a caretaker. I mean, it's the dream, right? Like, you get to basically like live. You get to and basically run like live on the property and like yep. just make sure the fridge is stocked in case mm-hmm. the owners just decide that they want to fly their biplane home for the mm-hmm. weekend to sleep in a cabin or whatever. Whatever. <sighs> yeah, and then otherwise you get the run of the place. It's the dream, and then you get paid to do it. Yeah. That's the dream. It's amazing. So as she aged. Huguette began to develop a distrust of outsiders, including her family, because she worried that they were after her money, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, she preferred to conduct all of her conversations in French so that others were unlikely to understand the discussion. French, the rare, <laughs> unknown language. <laughs> the, the term lingua franca was certainly not coined for it, but whatever. Look, she tried pig uh, Latin for a while. It just got <laughs> it really just messy. Didn't stick. Yeah. Um, By 1991, she had grown frail and had numerous cancerous lesions that disfigured her face, making it difficult for her to see or eat. Oh, that's tough. Uh, Yeah, it's very rough. So on March 26th of that year, she was admitted to the Upper East Side's doctor's hospital for treatment. And doctors there noted that she was so thin, she appeared, quote, like an apparition, like somebody out of a concentration camp. Oh, jeez. Um, she successfully underwent surgery to remove these basal cell tumors on her face, as well as reconstructive surgery to her lips, right cheek, and right eyelid. And a nurse initially noted in Clark's chart that she behaved, quote, like a homeless person, no clothes, not in touch with the world, had not seen a doctor for 20 years, and threw everyone out of the room. So following her treatment, she remained a resident of the hospital for the rest of her life. Um, she was initially a resident of the doctor's hospital, but she later transferred to Beth Israel Medical Center following the merger of the two hospitals. And her doctor, 
Dr. Henry Singman had strongly urged that she go home, but she was perfectly happy, content to remain in the situation that she was in. So she was happy to stay in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, She had regular visitation from private nurses and medical staff throughout the day and was provided meals in the hospital where her 11th floor room overlooked Central Park. I think we also need to point out here that this is not just like a regular ass hospital room. (laughs) No. This essentially became like an apartment. Yes, a palatial apartment. And she she paid for it. Like she paid a daily sum of $829 a day to stay in the hospital. So, I mean, that's expensive. So they were fine. They were fine. They were like, fine. Okay. Um, So hospital officials often recalled her eccentric interests, noting that she would often change conversational topics to cartoons such as the Smurfs and the Flintstones. Apparently she was a big Smurfs fan. Big Hanna-Barbera fan that Hugh Clark. Oh, yeah. Uh, so throughout her nearly two decades stay, Clark became very close with her private nurse, Hadassah Perry. Uh, over the years, Clark gave Perry and her family over $30 million in various properties, vehicles, medical expenses, cash gifts, and t- college tuitions. Why are you cracking? Did your mom ever get $30 million from her Absolutely not. I wish. Did your mom ever from a, from a grateful patient? No. Well, what the fuck? Man, they clearly were not hanging out with the right nasty old ladies. Jeez. Um, she, Hugh Gett, had a net worth of over $300 million. Um, She was actually cash poor in her later life, and she, so she started selling properties in order to give large gifts to both friends and strangers. Uh, she gave $10 million to her best friend, and she gave $25,000 to hospital workers who once fixed the TV in her room. <laughs> so, I mean, she wasn't stingy, for sure. Um, Hugh Gett Clark ultimately died on May 24th, 2011, at Beth Israel Medical Center. Uh, two weeks short of her 105th birthday which is wild. I mean, I guess if you're staying in a hospital, you're staying in a hospital, you don't have a job. You don't have nope. a husband and children nope. to, to drive <laughs> you, you to out. drink. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think you can make it to hundred. Yeah, exactly. When you have a lot of money, you can live forever, I guess. Um, she had been moved a month earlier to an intensive care unit and later to a room with hospice care. Um, and at the time of her death, Perry was at her side. So during this time, Clark had been living at Beth Israel under pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. The latest was Harriet Chase. Uh, her room was guarded, and she was cared for by part-time private nurses. Her room on the third floor had a card with a fake room number, which was 1B with the name Chase taped over the actual room number, which is just to kind of indicate like how kind of paranoid she was mm-hmm. about people finding her and still kind of maintaining this reclusive quality. Um, there was a criminal investigation into the handling of her money uh, that was ongoing at the time of her death. And her last will and testament was filed on June 22nd, 2011 in New York's surrogate court, and this will was made in 2005 and left 75% of her estate, about $300 million, to charity. So the will provided that her longtime nurse, Hadassah Perry, would receive about $30 million. Her goddaughter, Wander Steika, would receive about $12 million. And the newly created Bellos Gardo Foundation would get $8 million. So it's like she still had these properties that yes. were still just, just sitting. Being, just empty. sitting. She yep. had like whole floors of apartment buildings in New York mm-hmm. City conti- yep. like plus filled with artwork and collectibles and antique oh, yeah. furniture and antique Fully clothing furnished. and jewelry. Mm-hmm. Jewelry for sure. Just yeah. Just sitting empty and for decades. taking care of it. Yep. Yeah. Decades, decades and decades, which is crazy to think about. Um, her attorney and accountant would receive $500,000 each. Other employees who managed her residences and affairs would receive smaller sums totaling $2 million. Um, and Beth Israel actually received $1 million. Um, a Claude Monet painting, part of a series of oil paintings known as the Water Lilies, was bequeathed to the Corcoran Museum of Art. However, her distant family contested the will, and mm-hmm. on September 24th, 2013, was finally settled with the majority of the distant relatives receiving a total sum of $34.5 million. What a surprise. Hadassah Perry received nothing, and to add insult to injury agreed to return $5 million of the earlier $31 million in gifts made to her and her family. At least she got to pay, like, like keep $26 million or whatever of whatever was given to her. But like... So these these people that like didn't even know Aunt, no. great aunt Huguette was still alive. Yes. Contested the will, of course. Yeah. And managed and then, to come in. Oh, yes. Oh, I was so heartbroken to hear about it. And yep. she was my very favorite relative and she and would if have she wanted had known, me she would have wanted me exactly. to have this like bullshit hadassah perry was with this old lady 
her the last years of her life and deserved every penny. Ridiculous. So the bulk of the substantial remainder went to the arts, including the gift of her estate in Santa Barbara to a new foundation, which was called the Bellows Gardo Foundation. Um, in February 2010, Clark became the subject of a series of reports by Bill Dedman, who was an ex- investigative reporter for NBC News. Um, Dedman found that caretakers at her three residences had not seen her in decades and that her palatial estates in Santa Barbara and New Canaan, Connecticut had lain empty throughout that time, although the houses and their extensive grounds were meticulously maintained by their staff. <laughs> he subsequently wrote the book Empty Mansions, The Mysterious Life of Hugh Get Clark and the Spending of a Great American Fortune, which came out in 2013. It's a good book. I know you read it. Yeah. yeah. I've been meaning to read it. It's been like on my library list for ages and ages. Um, but yeah, that's amazing and so wild. And she had a she had a sister too, that when the sister mm-hmm. passed away, and that was early too. It was like she died of like something in the tens or twenties. Like that that really made a huge yeah, impact yeah. on her too. Oh, and it then, was it was meningitis. Mm. Yes, I do remember this. It was meningitis. And that's when, like, so her, basically her family circle was closing in because the family members that she knew and loved were dying. Mm-hmm. And then once she lost her mother, yep. yeah, it then was she was like, like, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. Um, the other person that I was going to talk about, but actually cut out of this episode <laughs> was um, Birgit Tyson Bornemisha, who is a baroness. <sighs> Um, she is actually still living, and she is still living at Beth Israel in New York City. Um, but that would have made this episode All right. super long. Well, so, you know what? It's good that you didn't do it because this gives us time to go do an investigative journalism. Yes. And we can go visit her and get go the Go visit her. Yep, exactly. Well, someone already did it. There's a New York Times oh. article about it. It's very good, actually. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll send it to you. It's very okay. good. It's very interesting. Um, so my second topic is the Collier brothers. Have you heard of the Collier brothers? I also Julia? am aware, quite aware of the Collier I, brothers. This is one of my oh, a thousand kisses to the sky. This is one of my favorites. So this is just so fucking insane. Okay. <laughs> the Collier brothers were sons of Herman Livingston Collier, who was a Manhattan gynecologist who worked at Bellevue and his first cousin, Susie Gage Frost Collier, who was a former opera singer. So you're already kind of, you're already kind of like, mm, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So in 1880, Herman and Susie had their first child, who was a daughter. They named Susan. She died at four months old, unfortunately. The following year, on November 6th, the couple's first son, Homer Lusk, was born. And in 1885, their second son, Langley Wakeman, was born. Uh, both Homer and Langley attended Columbia, which had just actually relocated to its present day Morningside Heights campus. Um, Homer obtained a degree in Admiralty Law. <laughs> Ah, yes. What? Super useful. useful. Totally applicable then and now. Uh, Langley actually studied engineering and chemistry. Uh, Langley was also an accomplished concert pianist. He played professionally for a time and performed at Carnegie Hall. Uh, Langley was also a layman of the Trinity Church where the family had been parishioners since 1697. So this is a family. They're well-established, you know, scientists, intelligent men, Yes. Long time New Yorkers. Yeah. Long time New Yorkers have their whole lives ahead of them. In 1909, Herman Collier moved the family into a four story brownstone in the Harlem Harlem neighborhood at 2078 Fifth Avenue. (gasps) Again, Fifth Avenue. What? (gasps) I wonder if there's like a ley line across Fifth Avenue that makes people crazy. Anyway. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Dr. Collier was known to be eccentric. Uh, he frequently paddled down the East River in a canoe to the city hospital on Blackwell's Island, where he occasionally worked. And then he would carry the canoe back to his home in Harlem after he came ashore on Manhattan Island, like you do. Um, around 1919, Herman and Susie separated. Dr. Collier moved into a new home, while Susie Collier stayed in the Harlem Brownstone. Uh, Homer and Langley, who had never married or lived on their own, chose to remain with their mother. Uh, Dr. Collier died in 1923. He left his sons all of his possessions, including items from his medical practice, um, which they brought to their home in Harlem. More on that later. Uh, Susie Collier died in 1929, which left the brothers all of her possessions and the Harlem Brownstone. So after their mother's death, the Collier brothers continued to live together in the Harlem Brownstone. For the next four years, they socialized with others. They left their home on a regular basis. Homer continued to practice law while Langley worked as a piano dealer. They taught Sunday school at the Trinity church. 
Um, so everything was like great, fun, hunky dory, couple of bachelor bros, just like live and laughing, loving in New York City. However, in 1933, Homer lost his eyesight due to hemorrhages in the back of his eyes. So Langley quit his job to care for his brother, and the two began to withdraw from society, like you do. So as time progressed, they became more fearful due to uh, <clears throat> changes in the neighborhood. This largely upper-class area was changed dramatically due to the economic effects of the Great Depression, and they were uncomfortable with the shift in racial demographics um, as more black people moved into the once-empty apartment houses that were built near a projected subway route. Um, so when later asked why the two chose to shut themselves off from the world, Langley Collier replied, we don't want to be bothered. Yeah. Those words will ring out <laughs> later. Um, as rumors about the brothers' unconventional lifestyle spread throughout Harlem, crowds began to congregate outside their home. So this attention caused the brothers' fears to increase along with their eccentricities. So it's this self-perpetuating thing, right? Like they're afraid of other people because they shut themselves in. Everyone's like, what are they doing in there? And then they're like standing outside their house and they're like, see, we're being persecuted. Stay inside, board up the windows. And, and the, the people standing outside the houses, what, what would they see? Would they just see windows that were just covered with all kinds of things? <laughs> well, um, after teenagers threw rocks at their windows, they boarded them up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and they also wired the doors shut. Sure. There were also some unfounded rumors throughout the neighborhood that the brother's home contained valuables and large sums of money. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of people attempted to rob their home. So in an attempt to exclude burglars, Langley used his engineering skills to construct booby traps and tunnels amongst the collections of items and trash that filled the house. Yep. Oh, Oh, I should have mentioned. You forgot to mention. The house house is filled with garbage. They are hoarders. Hoarder hoarders. Hoard like the original like King's O hoarding. The house was a maze of boxes, complicated tunnel systems consisting of junk and trash rigged with trip wires. Um, They both lived in quote unquote nests created amongst the debris that was piled to the ceiling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Langley spent the majority of his time tinkering with various inventions, such as a device to vacuum the inside of pianos and a Model T Ford adapted to generate electricity. He had an entire Model T Ford inside of his dining room, I think. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, He also, as you might imagine, cared for his brother Homer. Uh, He later told a reporter that he fed and bathed his brother, read him classic literature as he could no longer see, and played piano sonatas for him. Could you imagine how fucking creepy that must have been like, imagine like a movie where it's like open on pile of trash, slow tracking shot around giant pile of trash, haunting piano music in the background, dim, dusty light. Like yep. how horrifying. It's just, Crazy. this is really nice to have like booby traps around the quarter ha- house <laughs> for your blind brother. <laughs> well, yep. Yep. You'll, mm-hmm. you'll see. So, uh, yeah. So I mean, he played I piano think for him. he would go out for food. Like, yes, we'll get there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he tended to his health, to Homer's health, and he was determined to cure his brother's physical ailments through diet and rest. <laughs> so Langley concocted a diet for his brother consisting of 100 oranges a week. <laughs> That's a, a lot of oranges, a, bro. Not just that black bread and peanut butter claiming that this regimen was curing Homer's blindness. 100 oranges a week what that's so many fucking oranges langley wow um so the man didn't have scurvy i mean he didn't no he did not but unfortunately this poor man can you imagine he was probably like please let me out and langley was like no no i got i got got you bro so homer actually became paralyzed due to inflammatory rheumatism and he refused to seek professional medical treatment because both brothers distrusted, distrusted doctors. Mm-hmm. And they feared that if Homer sought medical attention, doctors would cut his optic nerve, leaving him permanently blind and give him drugs that would hasten his death. Which, Ooh. again, everybody, please believe in science. Um, Langley Collier later told a reporter, you must remember that we are the sons of a doctor. We have a medical library of 15,000 books in the house. We decided we would not call in any doctors. You see, we knew too much about medicine. Their problem was definitely that they knew too much about medicine. Uh So uh Langley soon began venturing out of the house only after midnight. He would walk miles all over the city to get food, sometimes going as far as Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Sounds far. Which is, 
yeah, it's over the, it's over the river. Like it's a long way. Um, he bought, he would go as far as that to buy as little as a loaf of bread. Um, he would also pick food out of the garbage and collect food that was going to be thrown out by grocers and butchers to bring back to his brother, Homer. So by the early 1930s, the Collier brothers Brownstone had fallen into disrepair. Their telephone was disconnected in 1937 and was never reconnected because the brothers said they had no one to talk to because they were like, what do I need this for? Um, they failed to pay their bills. Uh, the electricity, water, and gas were turned off in 1938. And so they took to warming the large house using only a small kerosene heater. It's amazing they did not burn to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, for a time, Langley attempted to generate electricity by means of the car engine, the Model T Ford, and his dining room. Uh, Langley would also fetch their water from a pump in a nearby park. Uh, their only link to the outside world was via a crystal radio that Langley had actually made. Uh, neighbors and shopkeepers in the area described Langley Collier as a generally polite and rational man, but added that he was, quote, crazy. A reporter who interviewed Langley in 1942 described him as a soft-spoken old gentleman with a liking for privacy, you think. Mm. Um, he spoke in a low, polite, and cultivated voice. Uh, his appearance was disheveled. He sported a droopy mustache, wore a 1910 boating cap, and his tattered clothes were held together by pins. Uh, while Langley Collier ventured out of the home and occasionally interacted with other people, Homer had scarcely been seen or heard from since he went blind and retreated from the world in 1933. Langley was obviously very fiercely protective of Homer. He would not allow anyone to see or speak to him. When he caught neighbors attempting to peek into their windows from a neighboring home, Langley just bought the property for $7,500 <laughs> cash. He was like, stop looking. Mm -hmm. This is mine now. Uh, when a small fire broke out in their home in 1941, Langley refused to let firemen who extinguished the fire see or speak to his brother. Um, the Collier brothers made the news again when, in 1939, workers from Consolidated Edison, Con Ed, uh, attempted to force their way into the house to remove two gas meters that had been shut off in 1928, <laughs> so 11 years earlier, and were met with hostility from the reclusive brothers. Uh, the incident, which was publicized in the local press, reportedly drew a crowd of thousand curious onlookers and was one of the few times Homer was seen outside of their apartment. Um, the brothers drew media attention again in August 1942 when the Bowery Savings Bank threatened to evict them for failing to pay their mortgage for three whole years. But, like, they had um, the money. Yeah, that's what's so crazy. Like, they had money. I mean, you'll see. So that same year, New York Herald Tribune reporter Herbert Clyde Lewis interviewed Langley. And in response to a query about the bundles of newspapers that were kept in the brother's home, Langley replied, quote, I am saving newspapers for Homer so that when he regains his sight, he can catch up on the news. Which is, like, very sad. Um, so in 1942, the Bowery Savings Bank began eviction procedures and sent a cleanup crew to the home. Langley began yelling at the workers, prompting the neighbors to summon the police. The police attempted to force their way into the home. Uh, they smashed down the front door. Um, however, they were blocked by a sheer wall of junk, which was piled from floor to ceiling near the door. Uh, they found Langley Collier in a clearing he had made in the middle of the debris. Um, he didn't say a single word. He just made out a check for $6,700, <laughs> which is, in today's money, $111,116. Um, paying off the mortgage in full in a single payment. So yeah. again, yes, they had the money. He then ordered everyone off the premises and withdrew from outside scrutiny once more, emerging only at night when he wanted to file criminal complaints against intruders, get food, or collect items that piqued his interest. So here we go, 1947. On March 21st, 1947, exact date. An anonymous tipster who identified himself only as, quote, Charles Smith, phoned the 122nd police to precinct and insisted there was a dead body in the house. The caller claimed that the smell of decomposition was emanating from the house. And as the police were used to call from neighbors about the Collier brothers' home, a patrol officer was dispatched. The responding officer initially had a difficult time getting into the house, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. There was no doorbell or telephone. The doors were locked. And though the basement windows were broken, they were protected by iron grillwork. So an emergency squad of seven men eventually had no choice but to begin pulling out all of the junk that was blocking their way and throw it out into the street below. Uh, the brownstone's foyer was packed solid by a wall of old newspapers, folding beds, and chairs, half a sewing machine, boxes, parts of a wine press, and numerous other pieces of junk. A patrolman finally broke in through a window into a second-story bedroom, and behind this window lay, among other things, more packages and newspaper bundles, empty cardboard boxes lashed together with rope, the frame of a baby carriage, a rake, and old umbrellas tied together. 
After five hours of digging, Homer Collier's body was found in an alcove surrounded by filled boxes and newspapers that were piled to the ceiling. Homer was wearing a tattered blue and white bathrobe. His matted gray hair reached his shoulders and his head was resting on his knees. Mm. So the medical examiner confirmed Homer's identity and said that the elder brother had been dead for approximately 10 hours. According to the ME, Homer died from starvation and heart disease. So police suspected that Langley Collier was the man who phoned in the, in the anonymous tip. Um, and so they theorized that he had fled the house before police arrived. Um, it was later discovered that, in fact, a neighbor had called police based on a rumor he had heard. So this was like, you know, mm-hmm. secondhand information. Um, a police officer was posted outside the home to wait for Langley, but he never arrived. And police began to suspect that Langley was dead when he failed to attend Homer's funeral, which was held on April 1st. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> after the discovery of Homer's body, rumors began circulating that Langley had been seen aboard a bus he- headed for Atlantic City. So there was this manhunt along the New Jersey shore, um, but it turned up nothing. And reports of Langley sightings led police to a total of nine states. So the police continued searching the house, removing 3,000 books, including several outdated phone books, a horse's jawbone, a Steinway piano, an early x-ray machine, and more bundles of newspapers. More than 19 tons of junk were removed from the ground floor of the brownstone. The ground floor. The ground floor. The police continued to clear away the brother's stockpile for another week, removing another 84 tons of trash and junk from the house. Although a good deal of the junk came from their father's medical practice, a considerable portion was discarded items collected by Langley over the years. Approximately 2,000 people stood outside the home to watch the cleanup. I mean, I would. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, that would be like, sure. I would sit there with a bag great. of popcorn yep. and a folding chair. I'd be like, what the fuck? I would call everybody. Get over here. You're going to love this. So on April 8th, 1947, a workman found the body of Langley Collier 10 feet from where Homer had died. Langley was found in a two foot wide tunnel lined with rusty bed springs and a chest of drawers. His decomposing body, which was the actual source of the smell reported by the anonymous tipster, had been partially eaten by rats and was covered by a suitcase, bundles of newspapers and three metal bread boxes. The medical examiner determined that Langley had died around March 9th. Police theorized that Langley was crawling through the tunnel to take food to his paralyzed brother when he inadvertently tripped a booby trap that Mm -hmm. he had created and was crushed by debris. His death was attributed to asphyxiation. They were buried next to their parents in unmarked graves at Cypress Hill Cemetery in the Brooklyn Borough. So, after this, police and workmen removed approximately 120 tons of valuables, junk, and other items from the Collier Brownstone. Items were removed from the house such as baby carriages, a doll carriage, rusted bicycles, old food, potato peelers, a collection of guns, glass chandeliers, bowling balls, camera equipment, the folding top of a horse-drawn carriage, a sawhorse, three body forms, painted portraits, photos of pinup girls from the early 1900s, gross, plaster busts, Mrs. Collier's hope chests, Rusty bed springs, the kerosene stove, a child's chair, even though the brothers were lifelong bachelors and childless. More than 25,000 books, including thousands about medicine and engineering, and more than 2,500 on law. Human organs pickled in jars. Eight live cats. The chassis of the old Model T. Tapestries, hundreds of yards of unused silks and other fabrics. Clocks. 14 pianos, both grand and upright, a clavichord, <laughs> this gives two you organs. This is how large this house was. I know. Besides, you know, 120 house. tons of trash, whatever, whatever. Yeah, no, whatever, you whatever. You had room for 14 pianos? <laughs> 14 pianos, a clavichord, two organs, banjos, violins, bugles, accordions, a gramophone, and records, and countless bundles of newspapers and magazines, some of them decades old, and thousands of bottles and tin cans and a great deal of just plain garbage. Mm. Near the spot where Homer had died, police also found 34 bank account passbooks with a total of $3,007, which is about Mm $41,785 as of 2022. Um, Some of the more unusual items found in the home were exhibited (laughs) at Hubert's Dime Museum, where they were featured alongside human marvels and sideshow performers. The centerpiece of this display was the chair in which Homer Collier had died. The Collier chair passed into the hands of private collectors upon being removed from the public exhibit in 1956. So the house, having long gone without maintenance, uh, was decaying, 
The roof leaked. Some walls had caved in. Um, the house was deemed unsafe and a fire hazard in July 1947 and was raised later that month. Uh, most of the items found in the Collier Brothers' house was deemed worthless and were disposed of. And the salvageable items fetched about $2,000 at auction. The cumulative estate of the Collier Brothers was valued at $91,000, which is basically the equivalent of $1.2 million yeah. in today's money. Um, of which $20,000 worth was personal property, including jewelry, cash, securities, and the like. Um, 56 people, mostly first and second cousins, made claims for the estate. Sure. A Pittsburgh woman named Ella Davis claimed to be the long-lost sister of the Colliers. Davis's claim was dismissed after she failed to provide a birth certificate to prove her identity, and apparently years early she had claimed that she was the widow of Peter Leibach, who was another wealthy reclose from Pittsburgh, who was found murdered in 1937. So they were like, eh, forget you. Um, in October 1952, the New York County Court decided that 23 of the claimants were to split the estate equally. And uh, now it is uh, the site of the brownstone is now a pocket park in Harlem called the Collier Pocket Park. And apparently the term a Collier or a Collier house is a, is a term in East Coast firefighting when it is a house that is too filled with garbage and is a super fire hazard. So that is a term that is used. Yeah. Um, but there's like photos of them and stuff um, online that you can see. I don't know if there is like any photos of the house that are circulating around, but I can't imagine there isn't. It was like a huge story at the time. So um, that's my two quick Oof. stories about urban hermits. I just love that shit. Oh, it's so good. Rich recluses, if you will. Yes, rich um, recluses. Yep. E.L. Doctorow did a fictionalized account of their life called Homer and Langley. And it is oh, really? one of the one of the books that like when I finished it, I was like, <sighs> like, it doesn't happen often Ooh. to me. Like it was a book that made me do that. Um, Ooh, okay. I'll have to look it up. So Damn. yeah, they he I mean he takes some liberties with their sure, story yeah. too, of course. And I think he has them living beyond the 40s as well. Cause I feel like He's starting to meet some like beatniks and hippies see, and stuff okay. like that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it talks about like their and 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 a lot of it is based on based on fact too. But obviously, they had to manufacture some dialogue and, mm -hmm. and things like yeah, that. And some um, motivations, but yeah, the it's it's really good. Recommend. I will definitely look that up. Thank you. I will definitely check that out. Um, so. Going off of that, I just decided to continue the fun. Uh, my quiz today is on famous hermits and eccentrics. Super. Question number one. A Georgian monk by the name of Maxime Kavtaradza has lived on top of a 130-foot pillar of limestone in the Caucasus Mountains since 1993. It's a surprisingly common practice of a particular set of Christian ascetics known as what? Despite the name, they are not especially fashionable. Question number two. Don't think too hard about it. Englishman Tom Leopard spent 30 years in the military before deciding to cover his body in a pattern of tattoos in the mid-1980s and live alone in a hut on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. What was the particular design he chose for his ferocious full-body tattoos? Question number three. In 1724, a 48-year-old man named John Tallis from the small village of Burkett in Worcestershire decided that he had had enough of the outside world and retreated away from it forever. Talis ordered the windows in his bedroom to be bricked up and then retreated permanently to his bed, tucking himself in tightly so that his head was the only exposed part of his body. Then, Talis had his entire head wrapped in various coverings, caps, and bandages made up of around 100 yards of flannel and fitted stoppers into both of his nostrils. A piece of ivory was placed within his mouth, and Talis often had a piece of woolen cloth laid over his bandaged face, just in case. All this in order to lessen the deadliness of what, which you definitely need to take in or else you'll die. Question number four. Chris McCandless was not necessarily a hermit, but more a nomad who was woefully unprepared for a dealing with the elements while living in the Alaskan wilderness in an abandoned camper van. His story was told in detail by John Krakauer in his 1996 nonfiction book entitled What? Question number five. William Pester was a German-born American pioneer of hippie lifestyles in California in the first half of the 20th century, known as the Hermit of Palm Springs. He was described as epitomizing the strong link between the 19th century German reformers and the flower children of the 1960s, and inspired Nature Boy, a song made famous by what three-named singer, jazz pianist, and actor? 
Question number six. This famous eccentric recluse was so terrified of germs that in order to open a can of food for him, one required one unopened newspaper, one sterile can opener, one large sterile plate, one sterile fork, one sterile spoon, two sterile brushes, two bars of soap, and sterile paper towels. When he died in April 1976, officially from kidney failure, he stood six feet two inches and weighed just 90 pounds. He had once been the great Renaissance man of America, a daredevil aviator, a visionary filmmaker, and a figure of impossible glamour. Who is this hermit? Question number seven. True or false, 18th century landowners sometimes hired ornamental hermits for their estates, where they were consulted for advice or viewed for entertainment. Question number eight. German Manfred Nangdiger was a famous hermit who lived near the village of Kamel in Spain. He moved to Spain in 1962 and soon began creating a sculpture garden out of stones, skeletons, and driftwood that washed up on shore near his hut. Known to wear nothing but a small loincloth, Nottinger became a local legend for his sculpture garden and his reclusive behavior. He died just months after an environmental disaster destroyed his gardens, some say from sadness. What environmental disaster caused his death, which is something you might see in a Dawn commercial? Question number nine. Sir Tetton Sykes was a miserable old hypochondriac who obsessively followed various bizarre health fads of his own invention. He lived on an almost exclusive diet of cold rice pudding, and so the story goes. In 1911, refused to leave his mansion of Sledmere House during a blazing fire until he had finished his bowl. I must eat my pudding, he is said to have told his servants as the flames consumed his property. He also had a pathological hatred of wet garden staple, which he would immediately flog to death with his walking stick if he saw one while out. And finally, question number 10. This common crustacean is, despite its name, a social creature that often lives in groups of hundreds, and the saltwater species often provides lifts to sea anemones on their shells. What creature am I talking about? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. break for me to eat my rice pudding with my sterile paper towels <laughs> good i know that's that's a nightly ritual for you and i for me be able to give you that time <laughs> <laughs> i think this is a hard quiz it's i it is a hard quiz i apologize um i was really trying to uh do like you know some like back door ways of getting in yeah so we'll see all right okay question one a Georgian monk by the name of Maxim Kavtaradza has lived on top of a 130-foot pillar of limestone in the Caucasus Mountains since 1993. It is a surprisingly common practice of a particular set of Christian ascetics known as what? Despite the name, they are not especially fashionable. Mm. My um, my guess before you said the word was ascetic. Mm. Um, but, but not particularly fashionable. I don't know a lot about the Georgian, uh, the Georgian religions, <laughs> the, the practice of I've Georgian be monks. Honest. Um, apparently, um, this is a this is a Christendom wide practice. Mm, this is not just a Georgian thing. Mm, <clears throat> and it might okay. it also kind of sounds like maybe a rock formation that you might see in a cave. Hmm. I I don't know. Um, they're called stylites. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so it's a specific type of like Christian asceticism where it's like in order to, I don't know, f flog yourself for being a, you know, terrible human and trying to be on board with God uh -huh. that you just like live on top of a pillar. Um, Kav Taradze actually slept inside a refrigerator for the first two years to protect himself from the elements on top of the pillar. 
Um, he actually now lives in a very comfortable looking cottage on the pillar that some local Christians helped him build. It takes him about 20 minutes to climb down a ladder to the small religious community at the base of the pillar that formed after Kav Taradza made his monastic pledge. And once he gets too old to climb down, he plans to die in his cottage. I saw like an article where they like took pictures around his cottage. He's got like a phone and like a fridge and lights and like, it's just like a nice house. (laughs) So it's not like a stone pillar that this man is just like sitting on top of for 24 hours a day and like somebody throws a a loaf of bread at him every so often and he just like he drinks by like opening his mouth to the rainwater okay yeah and the birds bring him like vegetables or whatever (laughs) no that's that is apparently what the early like early christendom ascetics like literally lived on like a two-foot square pillar and so like exposed to the elements and that whole thing but this guy no they didn't they definitely died up there um, but this guy, like, he's got a whole chapel and a and like a cottage up there. So he's basically in like a treehouse. He's basically in like a super cool treehouse and has a bunch of dudes living on the ground, like bringing food to him and also asking his advice. It's a right. good so gig. Yeah. Okay. He's fine. All right. He's fine. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Question number two. Don't think too hard about it. Englishman Tom Leopard spent 30 years in the military before deciding to cover his body in a pattern of tattoos in the mid-1980s and live alone in a hut on the Isle of Skye. What was his particular design he chose for his ferocious full-body tattoos? Is it, is it leopard print? It is. It's leopard spots. <laughs> um, <laughs> the tattoos brought him renown, and at one point he was considered the most tattooed man in the world but apparently they were in no way indicative of his affinity with leopards. He chose them because they were cheap and easy for most artists to do. And he wanted to quote, be the biggest of something. Oh, so this is, this is a guy who's just like alone because he doesn't have anything else to do. He's just like, eh, I don't have a strong opinion about anything. (laughs) Question number three. In 1724, a 48-year-old man named John Tallis from the small village of Burkett in Westershire decided that he had enough of the outside world and retreated away from it forever. He ordered the windows in his bedroom to be bricked up, took to his bed, tucked himself in tightly so his head was the only exposed part of his body. He had his entire head wrapped in various coverings, made up of about 100 yards of flannel, and fitted stoppers into both of his nostrils, and a piece of ivory was placed in his mouth. He often had a piece of woolen cloth laid over his bandaged face just in case. All this in order to lessen the deadliness of what, which you definitely need to take in or else you'll die. Is it oxygen? Yeah, it's air. What a weirdo. (laughs) What a weirdo. He stayed locked in this like special tomb of his own making for nearly 30 years, during which time his sheets were never once changed. Instead, a new bed was brought into his room once a year. And his servants had to roll him into it because his leg muscles had atrophied. You don't think at some point someone was just like, mm, it'd be really easy to press down on this. <laughs> on this <laughs> They're like, you don't want, over it, this guy's you don't want any face. air? Okay. <laughs> you know? Damn. Not to be, con- not to be uh, confused with the other John Tallis, who was apparently a very famous cartographer. So... <laughs> His, his maps are very um, collectible today. Uh-huh. All right, question number four. Chris McCandless was not necessarily a hermit, but more a nomad who was woefully unprepared for dealing with the elements while living in the Alaskan wilderness in an abandoned camper van. His story was told in detail by John Krakauer in his 1996 nonfiction book entitled What? <sighs> Man, John Krakauer really gets around. He really does. a lot of... Writing a lot of cold weather disaster mm-hmm. yep. books. Um, it's like a conju- starts with a conjunction. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this one's not into thin air. That's the one about Everest. Um, you're, I mean, you're. That's not far off from this title. Ah. Uh, I'm just going to say without a paddle. <laughs> That's a good guess. Um, it should have been without a paddle. It's called Into the Wild. Ah. 
Um, it's actually an expansion of a 9,000 word article by Krakauer on Chris McCandless titled Death of an In- Innocent, which appeared in the January 93 issue of Outside Magazine. Oh my which, God. Outside Magazine is so great. In- incredible journalism. We I are indoor kids, but we indoor will kids. the shit out of some outdoor ma- some outside oh, magazine. Oh yeah. <laughs> outside Magazine providing excellent journalism since I don't know how long, but oh my goodness, definitely check out Outside Magazine, everybody. It's so good. Um, the book was adapted to a film of the same name in 2007, directed by Sean Penn, yikes, with Emile Hirsch, yikes, starring ah, as see, McCandless. I was think I was picturing Seth Green, but I met Emile Hirsch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emile Hirsch, not a great guy. Uh, definitely tried to kill a woman in Iceland. Anyway, Iceland? Mm, somewhere overseas. Still not good. Okay, question number five. William Pester was a German-born American pioneer of hippie lifestyles in California in the first half of the 20th century, known as the Hermit of Palm Springs. He was described as epitomizing the strong link between the 19th century German reformers and the flower children of the 1960s, and inspired Nature Boy, a song made famous by what three-named singer, jazz pianist, and actor? Um, hmm, who plays the piano? With three names. He has a daughter who also became a singer. Nat King Cole. Very good. Um, The song itself was written by Eden Abes, styled all lowercase, um, who was also an influential California hippie in his own right. Abes was discovered living under the Hollywood sign and became the focus of a media frenzy when Cole's version of Nature Boy shot to number one in the Billboard (laughs) charts and remained there for eight consecutive weeks during the summer of 1948. In early 48, RKO Radio Pictures paid Abez $10,000 for the rights to Nature Boy to use as the theme song for their film, The Boy with Green Hair. And he was credited as the song's composer on the film's opening titles. How about that? Yeah, The Boy with Green Hair is about a boy. Everyone's favorite film. Turns green about, and it's about like war, like the green hair is a metaphor for war. Mm, It sounds very stupid. Okay. (laughs) Question number six. This famous eccentric recluse was so terrified of germs that in order to open a can of food for him, one required one unopened newspaper, one sterile can opener, one large sterile plate, one sterile fork, one sterile spoon, two sterile brushes, two bars of soap, and sterile paper towels. When he died in April of 1976, officially from kidney failure, he stood six feet two inches tall and weighed just 90 pounds. He had once been the great Renaissance man of America, a daredevil aviator, a visionary filmmaker, and a figure of impossible glamour. Who is this hermit? It's your boy, Howard Hughes. It is my boy, Howard Hughes. And for more on this hermit, Howard Hughes, check out episode 67, The Spruce Recluse. It's very good. Thank you. Question number seven, true or false, 18th century landowners sometimes hired ornamental hermits for their estates where they were consulted for advice or viewed for entertainment. That's that's very true. It is very true. They were also known as garden hermits. Uh, They were encouraged to live in purpose-built hermitages, follies, grottos, or rockeries in the estates of wealthy landowners, primarily during the 18th century. Such hermits would be encouraged to dress like druids and remain permanently on site where they could be fed and cared for. What a good gig. Oh, it's a great gig. But, however, the hermit at estate at the estate Paines Hill, hired by the Honorable Charles Hamilton for a seven-year term under very strict conditions, lasted three weeks until he was fired after being discovered in a local pub. So... (laughs) It was very, <laughs> he really wanted his hermits the to right live type that. Of person. Yeah, you really do. Okay, number eight. German Manfred Nottinger was a famous hermit who lived near the village of Kamel, Spain. He moved to Spain in 1962 and soon began creating a sculpture garden out of stones, skeletons, and driftwood that washed up on shore near his hut. Known to wear nothing but a small loincloth, Nottinger became a local legend for his sculpture garden and his reclusive behavior. He died just months after an environmental disaster destroyed his gardens, some say, from sadness. What environmental disaster caused his death, which is something you might see in a Dawn commercial? I mean, who doesn't love taking skeletons that wash up on the shore right, right outside their mm. house and turning it into sunbleached garden? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, people would pay good money for that. He did. He, he charged a dollar for people to come and see. <laughs> uh, is this like an oil spill? It was an oil spill. There was a massive oil spill from an oil tanker um, which covered his entire garden with oil. And so locals claimed that he died of sadness after the shock of the spill weakened him. He was 66 years old when this happened. Mm -hmm. 
Um, before he died, he told the media that he wanted his oil-drenched sculptures to be left untouched as a reminder of the devastation that this bill caused. Look what you did. Look what you've done. Terrible. Okay, question number nine. Sir Tetton Sykes was a miserable old hypochondriac who obsessively followed various bizarre health fads of his own invention. He lived in an almost exclusive diet of cold rice pudding. And, so the story goes, in 1911, refused to leave his mansion of Sledmere House during a blazing fire until he had finished his bowl. I must eat my pudding, he is said to have told his servants, as the flames consumed his property. He also had a pathological hatred of what garden staple, which he would immediately flog to death with his walking stick if he saw one while out. Boy. Uh... <laughs> Um, give me two guesses. Yeah, I'm gonna say okay. I'm gonna say frog. Uh, uh, no, it is a it is a plant, and you can be very general about this a plant. A plant. It's a, yes. It's a plant. Yes. Um, dandelions. Uh, I'll give it to you. It's flowers in general. He oh, just he fucking just hated, hated flowers. flowers. This, this this asshole hated flowers. Hated flowers. Um, loved cold rice pudding. <laughs> yes. Keep that. Put that in the. In the in the column, um, tenants on his lands in Yorkshire, meanwhile, were expressly forbidden from growing any such quote nasty, untidy things in the gardens of their cottages. He said, "If you want to grow flowers, grow cauliflowers," which was his <laughs> habitual mantra. He sounded yeah. a lot of fun. He sounded no like a fun guy. No one's ever said that. No, no, no one's, one's ever, ever said that. Said that. So this dumbass Sir Tatton Sykes. Okay. And finally, question number 10. This common crustacean is, despite its name, a social creature that often lives in groups of hundreds, and the saltwater species often provides lifts to sea anemones on their shells. What creature am I talking about? Hmm. So you got, so they got a shell. Oh, a hermit crab. Yes, it is a hermit crab. It is a hermit crab. Very Did you good. ever have See, hermit crabs? Great. No, I didn't. We had one in our, I think, one of our classrooms when we were kids. My my mom had some when I was really little, and I remember like we would get them new shells and just kind of mm-hmm. like leave it in there, and then overnight like they would move to a new shell and like leave the old one behind. Apparently, they like fight over shells. Yeah, They're like like they get into like brawls about it. So you got to watch out for those hermit crabs. <laughs> great job! You did a great job on that quiz. Great job! Fine. Nice job! It's nice always job. fun listening to stories about. Just I mean, big old humans weirdos. are social creatures. Yes. And I think that's why we're so fascinated by these stories of people who have rejected the society. Their biological need. Yes. There's something like for wrong. very strange purposes. Yes. yes. Very strange reasons. Imagined and real. So. Yeah. I mean, Ted Kaczynski was a hermit. Yeah, right? Right. So we don't have a lot of, but was it Outside Magazine that talked to us about the um, the guy in Maine, the guy who was living in Maine? Yes, I almost did a question about him, but I couldn't figure out like a good question yeah. to come up with that. Where he like broke into people's houses and yeah. like took their food and stuff yeah. and was there so for he like wasn't 37 like a very years. Good hermit, but no, and <laughs> a lot of people were like <laughs> the people that <laughs> the journalist interviewed in Maine. They were like. He didn't even live off the land. He was just an asshole. He kept breaking into people's <laughs> houses and like taking food and books and yeah. like kerosene lamps and like all sorts of things. And yeah. Built his own house back there. Like if you're going to live off the land then live off the land, dumbass. Pick one. <laughs> Pick one. <laughs> Stick with it. God. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for this. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Super. Topic. This is definitely our thing. Um. So I just... We have, I'm not going to say sad news. Well, it's an, it's kind of like an announcement. Like it's a, more of an like announcement. A FYI. Yeah. Um, after the end of 2022, Julia and I, the misinformation podcast will be going on a hiatus, an yes. extended hiatus. I would yes. say we are leaving the door open, but we are both moms. And can I tell you guys, we are very tired, <laughs> very tired. We see. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of taking a step back um, for now. We have, you know, family things to tend to. Yes. Um, that we, you know, we want to be able to give the appropriate attention to everything <laughs> that we need to do <laughs> in our lives right now. And um, well, we love doing the podcast. Um, it, you know, in order to to give a quality product, it takes yes, it takes a, a some time investment on our parts, and yeah, I it's think- a lot of work, guys. <laughs> yeah, 
don't talk don't talk it don't talk it down now, this is a lot of work like you said on numerous occasions it is a book report every yeah. other week at this point yeah but so um, and we both work full-time yes. and we both have kids yes. and husbands and we also would like to have a social life and sleep at some point and sleep at some point yes the sleeping i think mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we've learned is is also pretty vital um <laughs> So, yes, you'll still be able to reach out to us um, if if you have any questions or comments for us. Um, we love hearing from everybody. We love mm-hmm. hearing our... <laughs> we, I'm very sorry. I've, I have neglected to um, to respond to a few emails in a timely oh. fashion about um, some suggested topics and, and some kind messages and things like that. So um, it's very nice of you guys to, to send those our way. Um, but we will definitely let you know if, mm-hmm. you know, if things are coming down the if pike, there's something, if there's something happening, I mean, what every year, April, there seems to be like a new episode of, of something or other an offshoot podcast if yeah, you will I don't, and, uh, mm, it doesn't I don't know what is it like um oh gosh sir information yeah, i think i don't or, know and then may i mean i mean it's not like anything eurovision. goes on in may <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry there is eurovision <laughs> but yeah that's not to say that there's that th- there won't be future episodes of the podcast but right exactly. now we just um for everybody we need sake, to take a break we need to take a little break Yes, and we appreciate exactly. you guys sticking with us all this time. With our format changes. 230 and... plus episodes. Can you believe wow. that? We've been doing this a long ass time, Joel. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's amazing <laughs> that people listen to us. So thank you all for yes, staying with us guys. and listening and everything. Um, so yeah, the probably the easiest way, considering that all of social media is like burning down right now. <laughs> the easiest way to call all of us is email misinforpod at gmail.com. Um, but you know, feel free to tweet at us or send us a message on Facebook. Um, we're still keeping an eye on those until that Titanic sinks deep into the Arctic ocean. So, um, but yeah, ultimately, you know what? Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Yes. And you know, we'll catch you next time. Bye.